The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by Harry's Razors. Superior razors shipped straight to your door at half the drugstore price. Get $5 off your first order with the code FOOTBALL, that's F-U-T-B-O-L, at harrys.com. We're also brought to you by FanDuel. Now that baseball is back, you can try the fun and competition of Daily Fantasy risk-free for up to 10 bucks. Go to FanDuel.com and enter the promo code PLANET. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Brian Strauss. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here in New York City. Yeah, Brian, how's everything going? Uh, You ask me that every week and it's still my couch. (laughs) Must be one one heck of a couch. Um, Groove is in effect. (laughs) We've got a great show for you guys this week. Uh, Leicester City, obviously, the the story of the season around the world. We've got Leicester Native and NBC Sports Network broadcaster Arlo White uh, here to talk about all things Leicester. Um, got a great interview between him and Grant, so definitely stick around for that. Also, a lot to talk about in MLS. There's Nigel DeYoung doing Nigel DeYoung things, and then the Olympic trial happened today. We're taping this on Thursday, so plenty to get into, but we want to start with Champions League. Barcelona is out. There will be no defending champion once again. So AC Milan, 1990, that team can can pop their bottles um, and, and live happily for another year. Uh, Grant, this, I, want to, I want to start with a joke. Uh, a FIFA president walks into a bar <laughs> and, and watches Champions League. Uh, this actually happened, though. Uh, yesterday, you were at uh, Smithfield Hall in, in New York City, and Gianni Infantino, Mosey's on it. He does. Uh, he's in New York on a bit of a U.S. tour, spoke to Fox out in California, then came uh, and did an interview with me, uh, which should be out by the time you hear this on SI.com. Uh, got a good 40 minutes with him and asked him some pretty direct questions about a lot of different topics, including the Panama Papers, including the the equal pay for equal work debate uh, between genders that is so big in soccer and in the U.S. right now. Um, and it was funny because I, at one point asked him, I was like, uh, so where are you watching champions league today? This was Wednesday. And, uh, well, there's a, you know, a place down the street here. This was like in the like 53rd street in, in New York. And I said, well, you know, if you're interested, Bayern and Barcelona are obviously playing the official Bayern and Barcelona bar in NYC is the same bar, Smithfield hall should be a good group of people there. Why don't you come on over? And he did. And uh, it was kind of cool. I, I can't imagine Sepp Blatter having done something <laughs> like this. And if he had, the response would have been very quiet, I think, or even maybe hostile. I don't know. And it was interesting. I mean, we're still getting to know Johnny Infantino, but uh, he clearly loves the sport. And it was kind of cool just to see the, the scene of, uh, of fans who, once they realized the FIFA president was sitting in the bar watching these games with them, came over at halftime, long procession of people and about five different languages of people saying things to him and he's replying fluently in all of them. <laughs> and uh, and people generally just saying, you know, good luck, like we need you to do good work. And, uh, and I, I think it was probably uh, something he enjoyed, uh, getting a chance to have this sort of New York experience and, and see that the sport's doing pretty well here 
for me, it was probably the most fun I've had bringing someone to a bar since I took Gus Johnson to the American Outlaws party in Salt Lake back in 2013. <laughs> did, did he pay for his own drinks? Sports Illustrated picked up the tab. Wow. For still a, free, still a free ride for the FIFA president. <laughs> Sports Illustrated picked up the tab for the five-person FIFA group that was with us, but it, it was it was a fun experience, uh, except for the Barcelona fans in attendance. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's let's talk about that because um, look, Atletico Madrid beating Barcelona in the Champions League is is nothing new. They they did this three years ago. Um, but I think a lot of people expected this Barcelona team to coast to the final, and then they hit this rough patch since the Clasico, and they just haven't been the same. This is the longest Lionel Messi has gone without a goal or an assist in his career, five games, which, I mean, to most people, okay. But that's, you know, you're talking about Messi. That's astounding. Um, and he's sitting on his 499 career goals at the senior level, just waiting for him to hit this milestone, and, and he's hit a wall, and so has this team in Granite's. Now the league is starting to slip away. They're only three points up. Bad time to hit a speed bump for Barcelona, which looked so good at, at the heights this year. They've been as good as I've ever seen a Barcelona team, and so for this just horrible two week period to happen is stunning. Uh, my friend Ken Early, uh, Irish guy, who's in town last night. His theory is is that Barcelona offended the soccer gods when they took that penalty kick earlier that in the season with. Messi passing it to Suarez, that this was somehow upsetting the order of things in the universe, tempting fate, and that they are now having thunder struck upon them in retaliation. I, I don't know if I'd quite go that far, but I, at least it's a creative it's, uh, hypothesis. It's a take. You know? <laughs> it, it did seem for a while that only God could stop them. So. <laughs> now it's Atletico Madrid because, I mean, great defensive effort. Uh, for 180 minutes by Atletico and just such a pure Diego Simeone team performance here. And that guy gets so much out of his team and the way he approaches things. And they do get what they need attacking-wise from guys like Griezmann, who who was terrific in moments. And that was all they needed. And, you know, you don't need to have a ton of possession even though Barcelona had like in the 70s I think in this game um, but yes there were some some shaky calls uh, yes that should have been a penalty for Barcelona late in the game uh, you know I guess into injury time but the guy who was involved in that play Iniesta should not have been on the field earlier because a few minutes earlier he had a handball it should have been a red card so uh, do I think Atletico deserved to advance yes when it was 11 on 11 before, you know, Torres got sent off in the in the first leg about half an hour in. Um, Atletico Madrid didn't give up a goal to Barcelona. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, over a two-leg series. Uh, and, and we had been talking about this a few, a few weeks ago and we said in a one-off, like, sure, you know, they can they can lose, especially at a neutral site or, or what have you. Um, you know, I don't think any of us thought that over a two-leg series, Barcelona would be beaten, and they absolutely were. So, you know, kudos to Atletico Madrid. Now they join Real Madrid. Manchester City and Bayern Munich uh, in a semifinals just full of storylines. I mean, you've got the the potential Pep Derby. You've got the, the potential Madrid rivalry between Real and, and Atletico. Um, we're taping this before the draw. We'll obviously have the results, um, you know, Friday. Uh, and, and plenty of build up to the semifinals. But Grant, if, if you've got to pick a favorite, I mean, is 
Is it Bayern Munich just by default because they're so dominant? They haven't really looked all that great. Benfica gave them a, a good run. Yeah, they did. Uh, I guess it's Bayern Munich. Uh, you know, you look right now at what Real Madrid is doing, and yes, you know, the the discussion changes quite a bit after the 2 nothing loss at, at Wolfsburg when they come back and just have a, a remarkable Cristiano Ronaldo performance. Classic. If if Real Madrid goes on to win this Champions League, Ronaldo's hat trick would have to go up on his greatest hits. It has to, just because time, place, occasion, he responded. And, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Lionel Messi, but he didn't respond yesterday. No, had a, uh, almost like the, the World Cup final, had a free kick chance to, to save his team and it went over the bar. Um, yeah, Ronaldo was, was absolutely fantastic. And you know he lives for those moments. The whole stadium is chanting his name. And, and man, if that, I mean, that, you know, if, if you're a Ronaldo guy, then, then that was your day. Um, and, you know, look, Wolfsburg was, was fantastic in that first leg. Just it was a, a classic Bernabeu experience um manchester city uh, is there a, a chelsea-ish feel to this run just the premier league team that probably shouldn't be there but kind of is i think it's probably a good sign that they finally got this far considering how much they've spent over the last several years i still came away as the more dominant feeling of disappointment in psg sure. over those two games that they just completely laid an egg um and and that surprised me uh, I, I think it also shows a little bit that, you know, we've seen this with Bayern in, in recent seasons that, you know, once the league is won domestically, sometimes the Champions League performance drops off. Uh, and so uh, I have a hard time. We don't know the draw yet for the semis. I have a hard time seeing Man City get to the final, but I also can conceive of a world in which any of these four teams get to the finals. So it's um, at this point, I guess the main thing is Barcelona's out. The defending champion is out, the favorite. And so now the rest of these teams that are alive have to be feeling better about things. Absolutely. I. This is going to sound a little weird. I, Atletico Madrid is definitely not the most dominant team left, but they might be the most difficult team to beat out of the four. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and that bodes well. And my God, if in this era Atletico Madrid can go on and, and not even make a Champions League final but win the whole thing again, then I think you're looking at the greatest coaching achievement of, you know, and, and look, we've had, we've seen a lot. But Since Claudio Ranieri. <laughs> no, I mean, look, doing, doing what Leicester's doing in the Premier League is, is one thing, and we're going to touch on that in a second. Thank you for setting up that, that very natural segue. Um, but no, for Atletico Madrid to, to compete in Spain with these two powers, right. to, to win the league once, to make a Champions League final and then go on this run and and who knows what will happen. But if they are able to to pull it off, I don't I don't know if it gets better than that. I, it just at the high with the stakes as as the highest. I don't know. It, I mean, Simeone's a hell of a coach and he's been doing this for a while now. This is not just happening for the first time this season. And you talk about identity of a team. Atletico Madrid has an identity. It is him, basically. And if you want to know how much a manager, a coach can influence a team in any sport, look at Atletico Madrid. Absolutely. And it's always next man up. They've had so many stars go on to, to other teams and, and just been like a feeder for all of these so-called you know power clubs. And, and here they are just finding a way and doing it again. Uh, they will have Fernando Torres back for the semifinals. Whee! If I told you that 
that having an informed Fernando Torres back for the semifinals in 2016 was was a good thing. Hand him the trophy. <laughs> no, but in in all honesty, <laughs> he's, he's been playing extraordinarily well. Uh, and before his just mental meltdown, uh, where he got two yellow cards in a quick succession, he he was taking it to Barcelona. It's it's baffling. Uh, speaking of baffling achievements in the world of soccer, Leicester City is one of them. Um, Grant, you had the opportunity to speak one-on-one with Arla White, NBC's fantastic sports announcer, um, and a Leicester native who grew up in, in the town, knows Leicester better than just about anybody else. We will have Arlo and Grant one-on-one talking all things Leicester City. We have a terrific guest on the podcast this week. He's the lead announcer for NBC's Premier League games, and he's got a pretty amazing story to follow the last few weeks of the season with Leicester City. He's Arlo White. Arlo, thanks for joining the Planet Football podcast. Grant, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, Very cool to have you with us here. Only one place to start, my friend. Entering this week's games, Leicester City has a seven-point lead in the Premier League with five games to play. They're really going to win this, aren't they? Well, it's getting closer and closer every week. And and the way that they are closing this thing out at the moment is very impressive indeed. Um, I I think they had huge momentum after the the win at Sunderland, which was a real scrap of a game. And then it was turned by a wonderful ball by Danny Drinkwater. You know, it was the Jamie Vardy of a couple of months ago. uh, And he added a second in stoppage time. And all of a sudden, the lead over Tottenham Hotspur was was 10 points. And then we had Manchester United turning up late to White Hart Lane. That was quite dramatic. And Spurs seemed a little sluggish. And I was waiting for Tottenham to make a statement of some kind that they're still in this title race. And it certainly arrived in the second half with, what was it, three goals in five minutes and 46 seconds as they destroyed Manchester United. So it got the lead back to seven or cut it back to seven. Um, And I just feel that Spurs have a bit of momentum, a bit of a role going now, but they're running out of games. So Leicester will feel that they're in a great position, but I'm sure they'll feel uh, that it's not done yet and Spurs still have a sniff of the title. So I don't know how many of your listeners know this. I think a few do, uh, that you grew up in Leicester. Uh, You also know the history of English soccer. Where does this Leicester City story rank, in your opinion, in the history of the sport there? Well, as you know, Grant, English football has a very storied, rich history. Only one World Cup internationally, um, of which it's the 50th anniversary of that, which tells its own tale of, of England's success on the world stage. But domestically, we do have a wonderful football setup, and 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 so many clubs with so many stories, and they're so integral to their communities. Um, but this is right up there, in my opinion, with the greatest tales that this that, that football in this country has ever produced. I mean, you look back traditionally, and and actually two of the the, the, the great stories of the last 40 to 50 years have also come from, from this area, the East Midlands. I mean, Leicester is exactly one, uh, 100 miles north uh, of London. So Nottingham Forest under Brian Clough in the late 70s and early 80s were promoted from the second division. They won the title financially all the clubs were more on an equal footing back then there was more parity different teams did win uh, the league a little bit more often than the the cozy club and cabal that has sort of been formed in recent years but but what nottingham forest then did 
was win the European Cup, the forerunner to the Champions League, when it was a knockout competition. And and by winning it, they qualified for the next season and defended it. Mm. So that was pretty impressive for a, for a club the size of Nottingham Forest, who are now languishing in the lower reaches of the Championship. Brian Clough is the thread to the other club as well, which is local, uh, and that's Derby County. And he won a, a title with them, having brought them up from the second division in the early 70s. He'd left the club by the time they won it again under Dave Mackay uh, a couple of years later. Alan Hinton played for that team, um, who uh, has been living in uh, in Seattle for the last 35 years and, and a big uh, advocate of the Seattle Sounders. Um, so they were big stories. They were very impressive. Um, and you go back to the you know, double winning sides like Tottenham and, and Huddersfield Town under Herbert Chapman in the 1920s, winning three titles. That was impressive. Uh, and you can make arguments, you know, for the last 130, 140 years. But but for me, with the with the amount of money uh, that the competitors have and the big clubs have and, and the players that they can sign for a team who's starting 11 and they pretty much play the same one each week costs about 30 million dollars. When you put it into context of Raheem Sterling costing nearly $80 million, just, just one player, it is simply extraordinary what Leicester have achieved. So I'm happy to argue that the case with people and have the deepest respect with a lot of for a lot of the stories and the teams in the past in English football. I happen to have been born in Leicester, so maybe I'm biased, but I think this is the greatest story in the history of English football if they were to close it out. I'm in agreement with you on that, and uh, I'm not nearly the student of the history of English soccer. You are. I'm aware of those teams, um, and I just think the financial situation we're in these days is so, so different, and that's my sense. And, and from what I've heard, Sir Alex Ferguson believes the same. Um, mm. He was interviewed about it recently. Um, I, kind of a broad question here, but how has this happened? How did we get to this <laughs> point? Uh, what are the main factors that came together to produce this moment that nobody has expected. Yeah. I think there are 91 football chairmen across England asking exactly <laughs> the same thing um, because it's, it's so outlandish as to beg a belief, really. Um, I, there are a number of, uh, of, of instances that, that have, and, and confluence of, of events that have occurred here, Grant. And I think Sam Allardyce last week, when I was reading through his quotes ahead of the Sunderland-Leicester game, was right, and it's something that I've said before. If the big clubs, if Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, uh, and we can just about include Spurs in that now, mm-hmm. I think, but uh, but just say those traditional five were firing on all cylinders, had been um, run in the correct manner recently, um, had been as successful as they should be uh, with the with the resources that they have, this wouldn't be happening. Leicester would be having a great season. Um, akin to Southampton a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, under Maurizio Pochettino. Those clubs are so dysfunctional at the moment in, in varying degrees of rebuilding, uh, Chelsea defending their title in an appalling fashion so far. Maybe the future's brighter for them under Antonio Conte. You know, Pep Guardiola leaving at the end of the season, uh, so, excuse me, joining next season with Manuel Pellegrini leaving at the end mm-hmm. of this you know, Liverpool fired a manager, Manchester United are in something of a tailspin still after Sir Alex Ferguson left. And Arsenal just haven't been able to take advantage of that. So that's a major reason. But then you look at the ownership of the football club and the Thai family that bought it a few years ago. Remember, they were in League One as recently as 2009. It was only for one season. Nigel Pearson got them out of that. Um, the, the manager, Claudio Ranieri, taking over the reins from, from Nigel Pearson and doing such a great job. 
the backroom staff, the scouting system that's unearthed the likes of Jamie Vardy in non-league football, Riyad Mahrez in the depths of French football, and Golo Kante, who is an absolute revelation playing in France. And nobody else seemed to want him, but Leicester did because they knew how good he was. And, and they, they even got Esteban Cambiasso for a season mm-hmm. last year as well, which was, which was a, a huge thing for a club like Leicester City. So off the field, absolutely sensational. And then on the field, because of the scouting, because of the managers, they put a great side out there. And this team are so together. They're such a band of brothers. They're not the most talented squad in the league. Far from it. They have talented players. But as a collective, they're not the most talented. But my goodness, they work hard. And they've got a spirit, indomitable spirit. They're fearless. Uh, and they're deeply impressive. And, and if, they, if they do win it, Grant, I think they will thoroughly have deserved it. But they're just some of the reasons I think Leicester City are in this position. The planets have aligned and they've taken advantage. It's just absolutely incredible when you think about it. And I had the good fortune of spending three and a half days in Leicester at the end of February and the start of March, saw a game over there and and got a sense of what things were like on the ground in the middle of this. I can only imagine since then that the intensity and and the feeling has ratcheted up even more Mm. there. As someone who grew up in Leicester, you're in a good position to explain to our listeners what should we know about Leicester as a city? What's it about? Where does it fit into things among English cities? Well, I, I guess you have the flyover states in the United States. Um, <laughs> I, 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 Leicester would be a drive past town, I, I suppose. It, it is on the main M1 motorway, the main artery that, that goes up the centre of the country from London to the north. Mm. Um, so you're probably going somewhere else if you're on the motorway. You're probably going up to Leeds or, or, or towards Manchester or you're going down to London. Um, people from the north think that Leicester people are from the south. People from the south think they're from the north. <laughs> they're right in the middle, um, overshadowed in the Midlands by Birmingham, known as the second city in England, although I think Manchester is, but has taken that mantle recently. Mm. Um, and for the reasons I explained before, in, in footballing terms, Nottingham was a more significant city. Uh, and of course, they had Robin Hood. Uh, as well, which has made the Sherwood Forest and the Sheriff of Nottingham famous throughout the world. So we, Leicester were always overshadowed, never mm. quite having an, an identity of its own. You know, if you if you heard a person from Newcastle speak, a Geordie, you, you'd be able to place them straight away. Mm. The Scouse accent is from Liverpool, the Mank accent from Manchester, the Cockney accent from from London, you know, the, the, the Cornish accent. Everywhere seems to have an accent that immediately places people, but Leicester doesn't really. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's an oddity, really. But, but things have been changing in recent years, and it's not just a football team. Mm-hmm. Uh, people might be aware of the Richard III discovery. So in terms of medieval anti-heroes, mm-hmm. it's Leicester 1, Nottingham 1 now, we equalised. <laughs> um, his remains were found under a car park, would you believe, and they were reinterred in Leicester Cathedral. He was buried for over 500 years. Uh, and his, his defeat and, and, and uh, killing at the uh, Battle of Bosworth Mm-hmm. meant that Henry Tudor took the, the, the throne in England and that started the Tudor dynasty, you know, Henry VIII and all that. So it was quite mm-hmm. a, a significant moment in, in British history. Um, so that was huge for the city and it put them on the map and they, they were on news broadcasts throughout the world. But um, they've also had a, a, a pop band called Kasabian headline Glastonbury, which is the biggest music festival here. Uh, they've got a snooker player that's won the world championship. So there are certain things happening that have put Leicester on the map recently. In terms of the city itself, 
it's it's very multicultural. Mm-hmm. If you and I'm, I'm sure you did this, Grant, when you probably got off the motorway at some point, you drove down Narborough Road, mm-hmm. which takes you from the motorway uh, into the city centre. Well, there there are businesses there owned by some twenty five different nationalities. There's a wonderful atmosphere down there. It might be Somalis, Iranians, Indians, Pakistanis, uh, people from the Caribbean, from Eastern Europe, and and it all seems pretty harmonious. And and it's something that people from Leicester are very proud of the fact that it is a, a deeply multicultural place. But there are very few uh, ethnic related problems. There mm-hmm. seems to be a harmony, and I think Leicester City and their success is adding to the harmony because it's a common a goal for everybody. Um, Gary Lineker is probably the most famous person from Leicester. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walker's Chris, which he <laughs> promotes, are, are made in Leicester. But it's um, I like it's a good town. It's a nice town. It's got a thriving art scene, two thriving universities a brand new theatre. So it, it, there is prosperity in Leicester. And I feel as a city now, it is in the top 10 in terms of size in England. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to punch its weight now, whereas it's, it was probably a little meek um, for, for many, many years in the shadows of, of the bigger cities around them. Take that, Nottingham. Yes, we're back. <laughs> so when you go to Leicester right now, and I don't know how many times you've been there recently. I know you're going there this weekend. Uh, what's it like? Is it how different is it from normal? There's a buzz about the place. There's absolutely no question, and and it is the only thing that people are talking about. Albeit Leicester Tigers, and 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 we've spoken about this before, Grant. It, it does have a sporting heritage as mm. well. It's got a big rugby team called the Leicester Tigers. They are quote unquote the Manchester United of rugby union in in this country, and they reached the European Cup semi-finals over the weekend. Hmm. The basketball team won the equivalent of the FA Cup. A couple of weeks ago, the, the cricket season is about to get underway. They're hoping for an, an improvement there. But but Leicester City's um, uh, achievements are on the tip of everyone's tongues. And there's a huge market in, in Leicester. I think it's the largest uncovered market, or it might be covered market, um, in, uh, in, in Europe. And, uh, and that place is just vibrant, buzzing, flags everywhere, scarves everywhere, People are going bonkers. And I just wonder if they do manage to, to seal this thing, just what the atmosphere in the city is going to be like, because they will never have seen anything like it. This was never supposed to happen. People never thought it would happen in the history of the club. And after 132 years, it might happen this year and the place will go wild. <laughs> I suspect if Leicester has a, a game where they have a chance to clinch the title coming up, that you would be at that game calling that game. Have you thought about how you might call the moment when Leicester were to clinch the trophy? That's a good question. I, I haven't. Um, I don't tend to prepare in that way. Mm-hmm. Um I like to just experience the moment and, and you know, that can lead to you being very happy with what you did because it was a spontaneous reaction and it can lead to disappointment because you didn't feel you quite <laughs> nailed it. Um, so that, and that's kind of the, that, that's what it's like to be a broadcaster. That's a lot of the commentator, I suppose. But um, I'm, I'm coming round to the, the thought that, that maybe I'm going to have to write something here <laughs> or, at least, or at least have a, a good hard think about how to sum up that moment. Uh, and get all the information I want to get in as concisely as possible, uh, because it will be a huge moment. And that is something that is going to be played a lot in the future, I, I presume, uh, in America at least. Um, so, yeah, I, we are doing a lot of Leicester games. Um, I didn't see many 
for the first half of the season um, the, because we tend to do the games, Grant, that are picked by the, the British broadcasters mm-hmm. uh, in, their, in their allotted slots. And they weren't believing that this was going to go all the way. So Leicester played a lot of their games at three o'clock locally on a Saturday and we didn't do many of them. Okay. But obviously now it's the big story. So, yes, I'm going to be at a lot of those games and I'm certainly going to give some thought into how I would sum up something uh, with with that sort of magnitude, should Leicester clinch it? I mean, in the U.S. broadcasting history, I think Al Michaels called Do You Believe in Miracles mm. for the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. I might just take that, Grant. Should I just take that? Think- <laughs> that might be easy if, if yeah. Al's okay with that. I'll, I'll, I'll call Al. Let's see if I can borrow that for <laughs> But, I mean, that's the kind of moment we're talking about potentially here. I, yeah. it's, it's just such a, an incredible thing. Um, do you think Leicester is sustainable beyond this season? That's a that's a very good question. Um, with the TV money that, that's coming in, um, all clubs are going to be extremely wealthy in the Premier League, even more so than they are now. The, the, the Thai family are extremely wealthy anyway, independently through their duty-free business. Mm. Um, so the finances are there. Uh, it, it, I don't think they could ever match this, but you never know. They've done it, and we didn't think they were going to do it. Now, they're going to have different issues going forward, does Riyad Mahrez want to test himself at a, at a, at a so-called bigger club? Yeah. Um, they can't complain about not playing Champions League football because that's been confirmed, at least into the into the qualifier to get mm-hmm. into the group stage at this at this stage. And Golo Kante, because of the dearth of players of his type, uh, you know, of, at that level, is going to he could name his price and mm-hmm. name his team. I would have thought um, next summer, uh, Jamie Vardy, I think, will stay because um, because of his age, uh, mm-hmm. predominantly. Uh, Danny Drinkwater, does he does his eyes get uh, or head get turned excuse me by by another club I don't know so it's going to be hard to keep this team together and the secret of the success of this team is the fact that they've all got on so well as a band of brothers do, do finances get in the way in the locker room do some players start earning a lot of money as a resentment from other players I'm not entirely sure so financially off the field they should be able to sustain it it's whether they can keep this very special team together uh, to give it a push for for maybe top four next season as well. That's going to be fascinating. Um, but I think Leicester fans would be fairly forgiving of, of not of not achieving this again, particularly if they've got that uh, that golden patch on their arms on their sleeves as champions next season. I suspect they would have a grace period uh, with, with their <laughs> yeah. fans if that happens. I think they bought themselves two relegations <laughs> and no one's going to mind. <laughs> so you were in New York City the last couple of weeks filling in for Rebecca Lowe uh, in the studio while she's on maternity leave. Did you get any sense that the Lester story is resonating here in the States? I do. Um, I was fortunate enough. I'd never been to Madison Square Garden. So one of the things on the bucket list, uh, every time I go to New York, I try to do a couple of things that I haven't done before. Um, so fortunately, it was an NHL uh, on NBC night at Madison Square Garden. So I was able to finagle my way into that. Um, Rangers against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the evening. But on the way into the arena, uh, somebody just shouted out, hey, Arlo, is Lester going to do it? And, he was, and I looked around and there was this uh, sort of 45-year-old guy covered head to toe in Rangers, you know, New York Rangers gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I walked over, we had a chat and it turns out he was uh, of Greek origin. So we, we laughed that the, you know, the, the most amazing thing to happen in football before this was Greece winning mm-hmm. the, Euro- the European championships. Was it 2004? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do get that sense. That was an isolated incident, but it's, I get the sense that people are talking about it. I went on to morning Joe as well as a guest and, mm-hmm. and Joe was, was raving about, about Leicester city. Um, 
People don't pronounce it in America Leicester anymore, I've noticed. So <laughs> Good. Certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly progress. But I do feel that it is resonating with the American sporting audience and, and, they're, and they're paying attention as they are across the world. It, it feels like this is the biggest story in world sport at the moment. Yeah. And I, I don't think if Leicester were to clinch it, I don't think there ever would have been a more universally uh, uh, popular champion in English football history. Um, so, yeah, I think it is starting to gain some traction in the States. Okay. Now, this week, you're doing something special with NBC at various Premier League games. What exactly is going on? Everyone's coming over. Um, yeah, we did it last year, and it was really successful. It was great to get the team together. And me being and covering for Rebecca for two weeks in the studio was such a great experience. And I just love the fact I got to work with Kyle Martino again. That goes back mm-hmm. to our MLS days with NBC. Right. Um, that was great. And the two Robbies as well were absolutely fantastic. So the team are coming over, and we've got, because of all the the rearranged games, uh, the makeup games, uh, the Premier League are putting games uh, throughout next week as well. But we start on Saturday, uh, Chelsea against Manchester City. We're filming some features as well at mm-hmm. Leicester. There's a there's a pundits program that's going to be filmed. Uh, Lee Dixon and Graham Lasso are involved in that as well. Steve Bauer's part of the team for it. So we do uh, Chelsea against Manchester City on Saturday. Then we drive to Leicester on Sunday, and we'll be on site with a studio, pitch side desk, commentary team for Leicester against West Ham. Then we go to Stoke to see Jeff Cameron's uh, boys against uh, Tottenham on Monday night, and then half the team fly back to the states. And Graham Lasso. Lee Dixon and I will travel up to Newcastle and host Newcastle, Manchester City. And then by the time Wednesday rolls around and there are more games, uh, the guys will be back in the studio uh, to host those. So it's a very busy time, but it's always a lot of fun when we all get together. Um, And it just shows how far soccer has come in the United States, that you've got a studio, a pitch side desk and a commentary commentary team at, at three different games. That's more than the host broadcasters will have. So we'll have a huge presence three, four top games next week. That's very cool. And and people are still sometimes surprised when I tell them that we get more Premier League games here on television in the US than they do in England. Yeah, as far it's, as... it's a frustration for, for people in England. You know, we I understand the protection of the three o'clock window because of the because of the 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 depth of English football and and that, that window needs to be protected so that people still go to League Two games, still go and see Burton Albion, still go and see mm-hmm. Scunthorpe, still go and see Rochdale, and they get very, very healthy crowds. I mean, some of the, the, the third division crowds, fourth division crowds, rank alongside, you know, second division in most countries. It's mm. extraordinary. So I, I can understand not having games in those windows on television, but there are times when games are rearranged uh, and they're on on a midweek night and, and the world is watching them and we can't watch them in England. It's deeply frustrating. <laughs> Um, but yes, all 380 games, as you know, Grant, are available, uh, Premier League games are available through NBC and, and the mm. various channels. So uh, yes, I'd th- I like to think that we're spoiling the US soccer public. <laughs> now, when you came to Seattle a few years ago to call Seattle Sounders games, mm. you thought you were leaving the UK f- for good, right? I, well, I did. I, I, I never really had that thought that that's it, I'm never going to live in England again. Mm. But I certainly didn't travel to America thinking, well, we'll see if we can take advantage of this for a few years and then come home. <laughs> it, it just wasn't in my mind to do that. And and when I arrived in Seattle, I, I thought I was going to be there for a long time. I yeah. really did. And I had the most amazing time in that city. And it's always very close to my heart. And I still follow the Sounders to this day, uh, try and watch their games every week, keep in touch with the ownership, in touch with former players and nice. fans. Uh, I just love that club and lo- love that city. Um, and then when NBC came around, you know, a couple of years in um, and had bought the rights to Major League Soccer, career-wise, it just made sense. And it gave me access to national games and also Olympic games as well, which were yeah. a big deal for the organization. So 
Um, but then, then to be sent home uh, a year and a half into that situation, I think it was six weeks after our furniture arrived, I was told <laughs> that uh, or, or asked if I would like to go back and, and front up the, the Premier League coverage. And, and my wife and I said, yeah, you know, that, let's do it. That's just such a great opportunity. So it was it, my time in America uh, this time around was, was a lot briefer than I expected it to be. <laughs> I, I did expect a large chunk of my life to be spent there. But then the fates and TV rights and, and the way this world works um, sent me home. And it's nice to be home because, you know, my parents aren't getting any younger, mm-hmm. uh, my family around me, my, my friends. But, but there will, will always be a place and a part of me that, that misses the United States. So the, op- the, the opportunity to get there, um, I, I take everyone I can get. And uh, my family are coming on a holiday to California in July, for example. My girls still miss the States after spending a year at kindergarten. It's kind of seared into their memory. So any opportunity grant that I get, I, I head back stateside. Well, Arlo, I miss seeing you more often at MLS venues, but your voice is in my house very often. So uh, it's... Poor thing. Poor, poor thing. (laughs) Always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for joining the Planet Football Podcast. Thanks for the invite, Grant. Always a pleasure. Have you ever asked yourself why razors are one of the only products in the drugstore that are locked inside that plexiglass case? It's because good razors cost way too much. So much that people are more likely to steal them than just about every other product in the drugstore. That's why two guys started Harry's.com. They sell high-quality blades that provide a close, comfortable shave for half the price you're used to. Now, this is Alex Adnos. I'm the producer of Planet Football. And if you look at my Twitter avatar, it's pretty obvious that I don't shave all that often. But part of the reason for that is because shaving is just too darn expensive. This offer from Harry's is making me seriously reconsider this beard that I've had for about the past 10 years. Seriously, it is. And knowledge of that will make both of my parents, I think, pretty happy. Anyway, Harry's gives you factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman and ship their products right to your door. Stop getting ripped off. Harry's starter set is the best option for new customers, and it's a great deal. For just 15 bucks, you get a razor handle, foaming shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, for listeners of this show, Harry's is giving you $5 off your first purchase with promo code FOOTBALL. That's F-U-T-B-O-L. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And make sure you use the code FOOTBALL. That's F-U-T-B-O-L at checkout to let them know who sent you. Welcome back. Thank you again to Arlo White. Uh, that comment he had about Lester being akin to to the flyover states in the United States uh, <laughs> absolutely killed me. Um, but but he's fantastic. And and again, this story is is one to watch. Lester up seven points with five games to play. Tottenham still still there, still in the race. But it is a two team race, and Lester certainly seems like theirs to lose. Um, let's move on to big happenings in Major League Soccer. More specifically, Nigel De Jong's tackle on Darlington Nagby. If you haven't seen it by now, basically, De Jong, shockingly, came in late and uh, stomped right on Darlington Nagby's left ankle. Uh, fortunately for Nagby, it doesn't appear to be that serious, or at least the worst-case scenario, which has happened at the other end of De Jong tackles before, as Stuart Holden might be able to attest. Ryan, I want to start with you on this. Um, Bruce Arena had some interesting things to say. Blaming the hysteria on on this tackle on social media and journalism, uh, tr- true or false? This was a vicious tackle, or it's our fault. 
I guess that's not a true or false question, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> We're so powerful, aren't we? <laughs> um, it, it shocking how thin-skinned Bruce Arena seems here. I mean, this is a guy who has been treated like royalty in this country for a long time, by including by us. Uh, when was the last time Bruce Arena faced any real criticism? I mean, two thousand six. You know, I mean, he, he's he's lauded and praised uh, as as sort of the American soccer oracle, as a guy we all listen to, as a guy who built this this juggernaut in L.A., uh, you know, the man who's managed to find the the ideal balance between DPs and, and, and building out the rest of a roster. And now it seems like maybe a little bit of the bloom is coming off, um, you know, uh Steven Gerrard, is that working out? Is that even a thing? Did, did, does anyone game plan for this guy? Uh, is Dos Santos, the jury is out. Uh, you know, it may not work out. Uh, he goes and signs uh, De Jong, um, who has as long a rap sheet as anyone in the global game. Um, and yeah, it, the team hasn't looked good. They've looked disjointed. Uh, you know, they've recycled Mike McGee uh, to, to get them a few goals. Um, you know, Robbie Keane is Robbie Keane. Um, and all of a sudden things start to go a, a little askew for Bruce. And here he is kind of, kind of, you know, losing the plot here and getting nervous and getting anxious and lashing out and blaming others for his problems. Uh, you know, and it starts to sound like another coach who lives in Los Angeles. Um, one who, uh, Bruce probably doesn't want to be uh, linked to or identified with. So he's obviously off base. Everyone was predicting this when Dion was signed. We all sort of entered the, the pool about when this would happen. And, and it happened, and it happened to a young American creative player. Uh, the, 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 the league's greatest asset is its young American creative players, and there aren't many of them, and Dion could have ended the season uh, of one the other day. Uh, and the, the crazy thing, too, Brian, is that it happened on the heels of all of these comments made um, by Peter Walton, the head of the professional referee organization, um, about how, you know, this this just spat of, of red cards around the league is meant to protect the very player that Darlington Nagby is. Meanwhile, a yellow card is shown. The young stays in the game. Nagby is wheelchaired out of the stadium. Uh, doesn't exactly send one consistent message. No, this all happened. Was, was it 2011? I think, uh, you know, there, there was a, there was a couple weeks where Javier Morales and, 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 um, ah, the FC Dallas player. I'm getting old. David uh, Ferreira. Yeah, David Ferreira, thank you. Yep. Uh, the MVP of the league. Um, <laughs> had their legs broken uh, with, with tackles, by, tackles by players that no one pays to see. Yeah, in the end, uh, MLS needs all the talent and creativity it can get its hands on. Uh, it doesn't have it in surplus. And it should be the referee's job to protect the players who are trying to play the game the right way. I'm not saying that tackling a defense should be outlawed, but no one pays money to see Nigel DeYoung. Um, you know, we want to see good soccer and attacking soccer and creative soccer. And the players that are trying to produce that should, within reason, within the limits of the laws of the game, be protected by the referees. And obviously they failed to. I mean, you know, had De Jong been red carded, the tackle still would have been was still would have happened. A red card should be a deterrent, uh, you know, punishing a player after he's injured someone. The player's still injured. But again, De Jong has a long and sordid history of this and. You know, Bruce Arena is the guy who signed him. Bruce Arena is the guy who unleashed De Jong onto MLS. And for him to act shocked that people are dismayed that it took about a month for De Jong to sort of, you know, do his thing, 
uh, is just astonishing to me. Bruce should have known this was coming and he should have been better prepared. He shouldn't have. He just lost his head. I, I don't. These comments just aren't becoming. Yeah, I just look at the L.A. Galaxy identity over the years and it's a classy one. That's what they're about. They win. They do it by playing good soccer. Uh, Nigel de Jong doesn't fit into that. And you only have so many resources for designated players. And granted, he's not a DP this year, but he will be the next two years as long as he reaches a, a minimum games threshold we'll this year. This we'll, <laughs> we'll see now how this affects it. Um, it's three games, as far as I know. I've been told already. It hasn't been announced yet. Um, he doesn't fit the LA Galaxy identity, and we said that before the season even started. And so uh, is Nigel de Jong a uh, – has he been a world-class player in his position? Yes, he has. I mean, this guy – there was a reason he was playing in that World Cup final. Uh, there was a reason he was playing at AC Milan and Man City and all these other places. But for what MLS wants to be and for what it's spending its limited resources on, he does not fit. No, and and that's I'll, I'll play a little devil's advocate too because, look, if you're Bruce Arena, you're not going to come out and throw your, your player under the bus, especially one that you're heavily invested in for the next couple of years. Um, but at the same time, his remarks were, were kind of tone deaf to me. Um, and, you know, you've got Stuart Holden on the Fox broadcast, ironically enough, um, you know, talking about it. And they talked to Mike McGee, who I thought handled the, the situation extremely well, considering how tough of a spot he's in. Granted, you know, his his teammate just did this one thing that everyone is seeing as, as so villainous. And, you know, he's kind of taking the the equal balanced road with it. Um I'd be curious to know the reaction that McGee has gotten inside the L.A. locker room because my guess is, based on Bruce Arena's comments, that's what the locker room would have expected McGee to do, and he did not. And Maybe. I applaud and McGee for saying what he did. Yeah, and that's especially so soon right after on live TV. That's right. That's a, that's a tough place to be in. Um, I think we can all agree that that was just a horrifying tackle, and, and none of us are surprised that it happened. And it shouldn't matter that it happened to a caliber of a player like Nagby. It shouldn't matter if it happens to him or a homegrown player or, or just a journeyman guy. It's, it's just the fact that it happened, period. But the fact that it is Nagby makes it all the more you know troubling, especially to a U.S. audience who, Brian, like you said, you know, needs creative type players for the national team. And for Bruce to pull the persecution thing again. I mean, here's a guy who, who faces next to no criticism, who has all the benefit of the doubt, who has total and complete control at L.A., um, for, for him to all of a sudden, the first time something goes awry, uh, to act, uh, you know, so offended um, and so persecuted, it's just not, I'm shocked. I'm actually, I'm shocked that he wasn't more savvy and I'm shocked he wasn't more above it all and that he seems so wounded uh, by by the conversation. I mean, that's just not what I expect out of, out of Bruce. And and as Grant said, I mean, it's not what I expect out of this organization that, that, that has for so long... Uh, held its position deservedly as sort of the the blueprint uh, and flagship of the league. That That's not how they look now, and that's not how they're behaving now. One thing I'm also surprised with in reporting this week is that I didn't know this until this week, that MLS, the disciplinary committee, does take into account the severity of the injury when deciding how long a suspension should be for a red card like this. In fact, asking for the medical reports themselves from Portland. Now, all of us are happy that 
Darlington Nagby is not more seriously injured, that we still aren't, aren't sure how long he's going to be out. And, and sprains can get tougher than you might think sometimes. But he didn't break any bones. Um, and so the three-game suspension that we're hearing uh, DeYoung will get would have been longer if bones had been broken. And I guess I'm told the NHL approaches it this way. That seems crazy to me. Like that that would be used in how long someone is is suspended for and it, because I think one is not connected to the other. I think that is that consistent with the way they handle things like uh, like diving and stuff like that. I mean, I think I think you, the sanction is higher if you dive and earn a penalty kick that wins your team the game than if you do the same thing and it isn't a penalty kick or, mm-hmm. or the guy takes the penalty kick and misses it. I mean, I think. I think the league seems to have that approach. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think the league seems to have approach in a lot of their discipline that they they look not only for the act in a vacuum, but but its impact on either the match, the score, the player, that sort of thing. I also don't totally understand why the five member disciplinary committee for MLS is so secret. Why shouldn't they be as accountable as referees and players and journalists and all of us? Saying you would like more transparency in MLS and world soccer? I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> Uh, if we're bringing more variables into the equation too, then don't you have to take into account the history of the player, even if it, that history has existed outside of of your league? Um, obviously, De Jong in, in this case has a sorted history. Uh, Tom Benarfa, Holden, Shabby Alonso's chest. I mean, uh, Ned Grabovoy <laughs> went went in on a high studs up tackle last night in the Portland Dallas game, and 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 he might, you know, his his name will probably be brought up the next time the disciplinary committee uh, meets. But there's just no one, no one out there with two brain cells to rub together is going to look at, you know, put Ned Grabovoy in the same category as Nigel Dion. Nor was he's not, a, he's not a he's not a habitual offender of this sort of thing. And, and that should be taken into, in a, into account. Nor was his tackle in the same realm as Dion. Yeah, Dion's was pretty bad. <laughs> Didn't mean to equate the two. Well, we'll see. Dion should miss the next three games at least. We'll see what what kind of an impact that has, if any, when he comes back. Um you know, if, if he shows some contrition, if he shows a little more caution, I, I don't know that that we're going to see that. Um, we just start the clock and it, it's like the sign of the Simpsons in the in the nuclear power plant this many days since the last accident. You know, you just start the clock again for him. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, come back and talk a little bit Olympic soccer. The U.S. women just learned their draw. Uh, We will get into that and uh, a little bit more right after this quick break. Baseball is back, everybody. The crack of the bat, the freshly mowed grass, the sport you can watch when MLS or Copa America or Olympic soccer isn't on this summer. All those good things associated with the national pastime, including daily fantasy baseball. If you're not playing FanDuel this season, you're missing out on the most fun a baseball fan can have. On FanDuel, you can choose. Do I compete to win cash from fans around the world or start a listener league with my friends? Either way, you get to be the GM. Study the matchups, get your money ball on, and set your winning lineup. Entry fees start at just $1, and there's no season-long commitment. Play for one day or for 180 days, plus the playoffs. And here's the best part. FanDuel is giving new players their first game risk-free. Here's what you do. Just go to FanDuel.com and enter the code PLANET. Then enter a FanDuel league or start one with your friends. If you don't win any prize in your first contest, you get that $10 right back to your FanDuel account for more play. That's FanDuel.com with our code PLANET for a risk-free tournament of up to $10. 
Welcome back, guys. I want to close with some talk about Olympic soccer. We are approaching 100 days out from Rio, and the U.S. women's national team learned its draw as it goes for a fourth straight gold medal. They will play against Colombia, France, and New Zealand in group play. Uh, Grant, their their road goes to uh, Belo Horizonte. I'm saying that right. Belo Horizonte. And uh, Emmanaus, the uh, fantastic Amazonian city. Our home away from home. <laughs> yeah. I was telling Brian earlier, Brian and I went to Manaus as part of World Cup 2014, uh, and it's in the middle of the Amazon, nowhere near any other Brazilian cities. You can't even drive there from anywhere else in Brazil. There are no roads. Uh, but they built a, a white elephant stadium there, and to their credit, I guess, they're using it for the Olympics. Um, so now we know I'm going back. Uh, to see the U.S. women play uh, in Manaus. Last time I went, as Brian recalls, I had some sort of horrible disease virus that caused my eyes to be bloodshot and swollen. And we did, uh, Brian and I, stuff uh, for SI Video from the top of our hotel in Manaus. And it was this very heart of darkness type scene, I remember, because we did it at night and there was lightning flashing in the distance over the Amazon. And... um, it it was pretty memorable. I had no idea I might go back again, but here we are. Brian, there there's a, a wage dispute and potential work stoppage looming over all of this. Um, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn comes out and says that boycotting the Olympics uh, is on the table. Now, whether that's a PR play or not remains to be seen. But but this this is a big story. Look, if the U.S. women were to strike before the Olympics, going for a, another gold medal, this is their event. Um, I I don't know that. <laughs> seen anything that that drastic um you know and and all of these talks oh i mean there there was there was discomfort and 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 consternation before the women's world cup about the turf and talk about whether or not it should be played on turf and i don't know that they ever came out and used the b word boycott um but uh you know they'll play i mean i i just i find it impossible to imagine these women are so competitive um and this is this is their opportunity to do something that's never been done winning the gold medal the, a year following a Women's World Cup triumph. Um, I think they'll play. Um, and I think U.S. soccer realizes it's losing the PR battle here. And, and we'll talk to them. Um, I also think U.S., uh, for the women, uh, for the national team, I think they lose more, in a sense, if they don't play. I mean, for U.S. soccer, you know, last summer was their chance on the big stage in the spotlight. The Women's World Cup sort of had the calendar to itself. Olympic soccer, you know, it's, it's going on simultaneously with a ton of other events. And a lot of other events that that draw more attention in this country, whether it's the the track and field, the swimming, the gymnastics. I mean, more people are going to care about what Michael Phelps does uh, than, than care about what any of the soccer players do. And 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 so, you know, if the women go, U.S. soccer is not going to suffer from that much lost publicity uh, if there's some kind of boycott. Whereas for the women, this is a chance for them to to really prove their point, to do something historic, and really show everyone that they are worth every penny, that they are worth more money, that they are worth equal money, uh, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, this is a chance for them to do something unprecedented uh, and, and really hammer home their point. Um, at the same time, uh, and I may take some, some heat for this, I mean, I, I think, you know, I do think they deserve more. There's no question. I do think that a lot of the terms of their CBA are absurd when compared to the men, you know, the per diems and the less money per ticket sold and all that kind of stuff. It's nonsense. They absolutely deserve more. But at the same time, I would be curious to see how a second team, how a college team, I want to see how deep the U.S. women's pool really is. And I would be fascinated. I would still watch 
if they sent down a college all-star team to the Olympics, because I think they'd still be a threat to medal. I scabs? Think, I think, sorry? Scabs? Scabs. I think, wow. I think that the, 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 the infrastructure in this country for women's soccer, it may not be as much as they deserve, but it's still a lot more than almost everywhere else. And I would be really, really curious to see where player development is in this country and how deep the talent pool is. And it would be fascinating uh, to see a second team uh, go up against the likes of, of France, uh, Germany, and Brazil. I, I would still watch. Wow. I, I, you know, I'd be curious to know how deep they would have to go in the pool to get players who are willing to play because it is the Olympics. But then again, do you want to cross the, uh, if, if they were to go on strike, do you want to cross the U.S. women's national team players? That could get uh, hypothetical, obviously, here. And I think we all agree that, you know, 99.9% chance that the U.S. women's team is going to play in the Olympics. But still interesting to think about. It's worth pointing out here that the U.S. drew New Zealand, France, and Colombia in the first round of the Olympics. Not a lot of pressure, to be honest, even though France is a great team and they can win this thing. Uh, but not a lot of pressure because you can finish in third place and advance to the knockout rounds, uh, which is partly due to the ridiculous structure of Olympic soccer, where there are 16 men's teams and 12 women's teams. And that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Uh, there should be at least 16 for the women's side. 16 is a perfect number for a tournament. Uh, and I was told by someone who knows such things, the reason for this is that it used to be 16 men's and eight women's teams. It was 10, I think, in 2000 on the women's side. But uh, the Olympics wants to limit the numbers of participants, I guess, uh, to... Uh, 24 total teams in a sport and they made an allowance they did a solid for women's soccer by by moving them to 12 but they will not go so far as to give them 16 that sounds kind of like a ridiculous explanation to me um so you know things get really interesting in the knockout round i'm also a little bummed out that these three teams the u.s is playing in the group stage they played all of them at the Olympics last time, including two of them in the same group, France and Colombia. They played New Zealand in the quarterfinals last time. So there's not a lot of variety going on here, and, that, and that's a little frustrating as well, and that's a result of only having 12 teams in the tournament. There's only so much vacancy in the Olympic Village, apparently. That's, yeah. Um, let's, let's get more into the, the differences between the men's and, and the women's tournaments uh, because, obviously, the men's tournament, totally under 23, except for the overage players and the women's, uh, is a is a senior national team tournament. To me, the overage player rule uh, for men's Olympic soccer is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. It's it is so ridiculously stupid. Um, you know, your officers are limited anyway, um, just in, in the size, and it's an under twenty three competition all the way up until the grand stage. And Brian, we were talking about this the other day, and I made this comparison to you. What if for the entire NCAA season, you know? NCAA basketball, you know, these teams are, are, are playing and playing, qualifying for the, the main event, the NCAA tournament. Then it becomes NCAA tournament time. And all of a sudden, Villanova, North Carolina, Kansas can call on three alumni. Just, hey, come play with us for the tournament. Why That'd not? Be cool. It would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool. But it doesn't happen for good reason. It's so, it's so stupid. So, God, just make it a U23 tournament on the men's side or make it a senior tournament and just be done with it. Uh, the fact that it's a U23 tournament is great. It's a great opportunity for these young players to to play against some of the elite competition that they're going to be up against uh, in, in future World Cups. Now, I get the argument that the overage players put butts in the seats. The fact that Neymar is going to be playing for Brazil, we assume, 
uh, is fantastic. He's 24. It's great. Um, you know, he, he did last time, right? I mean, it's not like these guys never have the opportunity to play in the Olympics as they, as they grow up through their, their careers. So it's, you know, there's a cool element to it. I get that. But in terms of competition, it is just so ridiculously dumb. Yeah. And the idea that you teams, club teams are not forced to release players for the Olympics itself or for Olympic qualifying tournaments. And so this tournament will take place in the month of August. And I guarantee you that there are a lot of players that are going to be refused release by their clubs. And that's part of this whole back and forth with Neymar and Barcelona about do we release him for Copa, or they would have to release him for Copa America, but they're not. And in return, he's going to get to play in the Olympics at home. It's it's just a screwy system. And Olympic men's soccer, to be honest, yeah, most of the most of the soccer world doesn't care much about it for a reason. I'm bummed. I'm bummed that Nabar won't be in the Copa America, but that's perhaps selfish. Um, you know, I, I love Avi's uh, analogy for the NCAA tournament. It's perfect. Uh, I'll, I'll throw this out. There's a competition in Africa. I think it's called the African Nations Championship. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if it still exists. It does. Um, okay. But uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it is a national team tournament. It is a official competition. And it is it is designed for teams representing countries uh, comprised of players that play in those countries' domestic leagues. So it's essentially uh, a league all-star team uh, from each country that puts on its national team's shirt and goes and plays uh, the other league all-star teams uh, from those. So it would be the equivalent of an MLS all-star team against a league MX all-star team. Um, And it's designed to deepen talent pools and give these players international experience and that sort of thing. What if instead of an under 23 tournament, because we've got junior tournaments, we've got the U20 World Cup and all and stuff like that. There are other ways to to make the Olympics attractive, an attractive product with some players people recognize, but also separate it from the World Cup. You could do it that way. You could do it that the players have to be domestically based, or you could do it with players who haven't represented their country in a World Cup or a World Cup qualifier. So you're getting, you're, you're still getting some recognizable names, but you're perhaps getting, a, you know, you're getting some players who might not otherwise have the opportunity to play at a global event. Um, I think either of those would be more compelling uh, than what we have now, which is this sort of junior tournament that at the end brings in some players just to sell tickets, which I agree is really lame. FIFA might hire Strauss. I was going to say Strauss for FIFA. That's I like that. I'm down with that, too. Um, And of course, with Copa America and the Euros going on this year, the the pool of overage players is kind of a little bit tighter now because like like with Neymar, you know, these guys aren't playing in both tournaments. I do find it fascinating that Argentina and Portugal are in the same group in the Olympics. What if Messi and, and Ronaldo didn't have these other commitments and could be called in for the Olympics to play each other in the group stage? I guess that would be one uh, exception I would make to being excited about the overage rule. I do remember being in Greece covering the 2004 Olympic tournament, and this was not long after the 2000, Euro 2004. And Portugal had gone to the final at home. They had lost. And Cristiano Ronaldo had a good tournament, very young Cristiano Ronaldo then. And he actually did play in the Olympics. And I was one of like 10 people in the stands in Patras, Greece, when Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal lost to Iraq. And when Ronaldo was leaving the field, I think it was basically a look on his face of, I really didn't try very hard here. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, after praising Ronaldo before, I guess we'll, we'll end on that lovely note. <laughs> 
look, I generally am excited about Olympic soccer. I think it'll be fascinating to see if Mexico can win an, another gold medal. They are the defending champions. And of course, the story is going to be on the men's side. Brazil going for its first, the U.S. women going for their fifth. Uh, with that, very eclectic podcast this week. Touched on what? Champions League, Leicester City, MLS, Olympics. Got it all. Uh, I want to thank Arlo White again for his time and, and joining us. Be sure to watch Leicester City's run in for the Premier League title. We will be all over that like we have been over these last few months. I want to thank Grant Wall, Brian Strauss. Our producer is Alex Abnos. I am Avi Creditor. We will talk to you next week on the Planet Football Podcast. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.